find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. What's up, you guys? I'm Catherine. And I'm Haley. And we are Saturdays Are for the Ghouls, a podcast on the Podmoth Network. We cover all things spooky, like horror movies, true crime, the supernatural, and spooky stories in the most chaotic way possible. So join your favorite ghoul friends every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And become a spooky babe. <laughs> so spooky babes, we'll see you in your nightmares. Detective Jim Gadbury had an important message for Paul Crow, the lead investigator. This man, Gerald Eugene Stano, fit the profile of a suspect in a missing persons case almost perfectly. A white male in his late 30s or early 40s, lives in the Daytona Beach area, drives an ordinary car, picks up hitchhikers and prostitutes, has a hot temper, hates women, cannot deal with rejection, has killed before, and will kill again. Armed with a double-stacked magazine full of new information on April 1st, 1980, Gadbury and Crow bring Stano in for questioning. They decided to ask him some questions they already knew the answer to. They were trying to see how he'd reacted when lying versus telling the truth. When he was lying, he'd lean back. And when he was telling the truth, he'd lean forward. In this moment, the men are certain of two things. That this is the John they've been looking for, and that he's probably not a very good poker player. After interrogating Stano for about an hour, Crow decides to go a little further and ask Stano some follow-up questions about something he needs some help with. Gerald, I need your help. I've been trying to find this girl that's been missing for quite a while, and, well, I was wondering if you'd seen her. The detective shows him a picture of Mary. Stano says, Yeah, I've seen her before. I saw her last month at another hotel. Gave her a ride to Atlantic Avenue, and that was the last time I saw her. Paul Crow, a seasoned veteran of both the Vietnam War and the FBI Homicide Investigation School, knew that the man in front of him was lying. He was intimately familiar with the criminal mind and how to dig for information. Gerald, what are you upset about? He asked. Stano leaned forward and looked directly into Crow's eyes. Today's the day you got me day. Today's the day my parents adopted me. According to police reports, Stano began to talk about his childhood and his relationship with his parents. After a while, Crow brought the subject back around to Mary Carol Miller. Stano changed his earlier statement about dropping her off in Atlantic Avenue and said that he ended up just driving around for a while and eventually stopped at a local supermarket to buy some beer. She just sat in the car while you got some beers. Yeah. Are you sure you didn't try to get in her pants, Gerald? Yeah. You wanted to get a little bit, and she didn't. Is that right? Yeah, goddammit. She didn't want to give it to you? No, she didn't. She could hit pretty hard, couldn't she, Gerald? You goddamn right she could. So what did you do? Did you hit her? You got pretty mad, didn't you? Goddamn right I did. I got so goddamn mad I stabbed her as hard as I could. Tell me how you stabbed her. Well, I carried his knife under the seat, so I pulled it out and just hit her as hard as I could. What did you do then, Gerald? I stabbed her several times in the chest. She opened the door and tried to get out, but I cut her on the leg and pulled her back in. I shut the door, she fell forward and hit her head against the dashboard and started gargling. 
I stabbed her a couple more times in the back because she was messing up my car. She just went limp. So I took her. D -d -d don't, don't, don't tell me anymore. Let's go in the car. You'll direct. I'll drive. Welcome back to My Second Self and I. Sorry for the long absence. Got hit with a big old wave of imposter syndrome and some other errant life chaos that made it kind of hard to make some time. But, you know, things are crazy where they were, but they're calmer now and I'm back. If you're new here, hi, I'm Matt. The other voice that might chime in from time to time is Alex. He is the pseudo co-host and also, full disclosure, just one of the other voices in my head. It's still me. Today we're talking about a very interesting person. Gerald Eugene Stano confessed to around 41 murders, had 22 linked to him, and was convicted of one murder that landed him a death sentence. If that math doesn't make sense to you either, don't worry, we're gonna get there. And we'll go from the beginning like we usually do, and I'll get everybody caught up to speed in eh, roughly about you know half an hour or so. Look, just give me 30 minutes and I swear you'll love me. Please love me! I'm okay. Before we fly off into the wild purple yonder that is this story, I have to let new listeners know, check this out, this will make the show way better if I do this now. Guess what? This is a comedy show. I'm gonna make some jokes. You know, sometimes some of the stuff you hear in a true crime story, kinda gross. Maybe a little bit scary, a little bit sad. I need to be silly to be able to cope with the horrible shit that I read on here. So, don't worry, I know enough about what I'm doing, I think, at this point, to keep it tasteful yet still entertaining. So now that that's out of the way, I can tell you a really interesting story. It is glad to be back, everybody. Let's whoosh on over to story time. Old Gerald was actually born as Paul Zeininger on September 12, 1951. Born in Schenectady, New York, as the fifth child and the third that his mother would eventually put up for adoption. She was just tired of all these damn freeloading kids taking up all the extra space in her dresser drawers. She needs that space for more socks. No, but um, not much is known actually about his biological mother, except for that she was maybe a prostitute and that she was extraordinarily neglectful. In fact, she paid so little attention to poor little Paul that after she surrendered him over to social services, they told her that he was basically unadoptable. There were a ton of emotional and behavioral issues that proved to be just a little bit too difficult for most people to, you know, want to take a chance on. Which is weird. I've never heard that said about an infant human baby that's barely even a year old. That's usually something I hear when they're talking about, like, poorly socialized and aggressive dogs. That's unadoptable. I've never heard that said about a baby before. I mean, maybe they should have tried some treats or a prong collar, you know? I mean, if we're going for results, then let's try everything, you know? Him being put up for adoption might have been the best option for him, though. The best adoption option for him. <laughs> he was so far gone that he was basically like a wild animal. Frequently removing his diaper, playing with his own shit, sometimes eating it. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of hope for the aforementioned Zeininger. However, he is now a Stano after being voluntarily adopted by Norma Stano. Yay! 
She's a nurse, and her super supportive husband Eugene decided to take a chance and give Gerald the fighting chance he should have gotten from his real mom. They also changed his name from Paul Zininger to Gerald Eugene Stano. Interesting fact I found, to keep in your hat for a little bit later on, a lot of serial killers are adoptees, and according to the FBI, 16% of all known serial killers have been adoptees, so... Just thought that was interesting, well, But Matt, what about the dad? Um, fucking what about him? I think he's still out for the fabled pack of smokes and gallon of milk. There is zero mention of the actual sperm donor anywhere in any of the articles I read, which I actually just realized kind of points, you know, it's a little more evidence toward his mom being a sex worker, so... Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense now. His new foster parents were indeed very loving and caring, but he still had some behavioral problems. He wet the bed until about age 10, that's part of the serial killer triangle. He got C's and D's all throughout high school, except music. He was good at music. You know, that kind of makes sense to me. Music makes you feel things, and he probably has a lot of different feeling floating around inside that head of his. He's also pretty emotionally distant, probably keeps a lot of things to himself, which could be why he connected with music. He does share a lot of similarities with other serial killers, too, as far as his behavioral issues go. A lot of times, serial killers are solidified in their loneliness by sometime between the ages 8 and 12, at least according to an FBI profiler, Robert Ressler. Check out this really neat quote from him. Loneliness and isolation do not always mean that the potential killers are introverted and shy. Some are, but others are gregarious with other men and are good talkers. The outward orientation of the latter masks their inner isolation. A lot of serial killers, as we've discussed before, tend to be able to blend in and adapt to their environment. They can just chameleon their way through whatever their day takes them through. You'd never know any of these people were even capable of even the smallest of crimes, let alone murdering tons of people in disgusting ways. He lied a lot, stole money out of his dad's wallet to... Oh my god, I forgot about this. This is... Oh wow, this is the saddest goddamn thing I've read in a while on this show anyway. He gave... So he stole money from his dad's wallet. He gave that money to some of the other kids on the track and field team so that they would lose on purpose just so that Stano didn't look like a complete and utter failure. I mean, I get why he did that, but that's still... It's like being the number one Candy Crush player in the world. Like You still had to pay to win. And they're probably going to use that money to throw a party with beer and girls that Stano also isn't invited to. Jocks are mean like that. They probably roasted him a little bit after that, too. He was, no surprises here, bullied a shitload as well. Just couldn't figure out how to deal with bullies and mean kids, unfortunately. Seems like he probably internalized a lot of what he had to put up with on a given day because at age 14, he was arrested for pulling a fire alarm. Another time for throwing rocks over a bridge at cars, which could have maybe killed somebody. Big rocks, small cars. When I'm through here, all these cars are gonna look like my ass, with a big crack and full of angry men. He was then sent to military school in Virginia to try to help him, you know, straighten up and fly right. That didn't really work too well either. Turns out, the environment didn't really matter. As soon as he got there, he began stealing from the other students. He picks pockets and purses like I pick my nose when I have a cold. I gotta get what I can, but I, I, I can't let anybody see me. Ew. He finally graduated high school at 21, back down in Daytona Beach. 21 years old, graduating high school. I, wow. 
After he got his diploma, he enrolled himself in computer school. Did pretty okay there, actually. Made his parents pretty happy for a while, until he got a job at a local hospital and was fired five months later for stealing money from coworkers, just rifling through purses and cheap handbags in the back. Like, all right, we got some paper clips, an eyebrow pencil, there's some lipstick. Pff, Kathy, you ain't kissing nobody with them bird lips. Who are you kidding? And what? You only got six bucks in here? What gives? So that didn't work out too well for very long. He then moved back to Ormond Beach, Florida with his parents, was fired from a string of jobs in very short order after getting back down there. Can probably figure out why he didn't stick around those places. And then here's something that's going to stick with you for a little while. He met and impregnated a mentally challenged girl. I have no idea what the actual nature of their relationship to each other was, aside from this specific interaction. Regardless, her parents found out and were rightfully pretty pissed. And then Stano's parents were also pretty pissed because they had to pay for her abortion. Right around here is when Stano decides he wants to experiment a little bit with some stuff. I'm surprised it took this long, honestly. I mean, think about his life up to this point. He's around 20 years old when this happens. His mother gave him up for adoption before he was a year old. No mention of biological dad anywhere. Thanks, Mom. He's got an entirely new name from the one he was born with. Didn't have a ton of friends. Made bad grades. Threw rocks at cars for fun. Stole shit. Moved around a lot. He's got a lot of different things going on that he could abuse and escape from. He winds up moving back down to Ormond Beach at the behest of his parents shortly after this whole situation, and he reluctantly agrees to go, but the next five years were just a blur of booze and whatever else he could get his hands on. And for him, probably seemed like a pretty short five years, too. Alcohol is a gateway drug to the future. You ever start drinking on a Friday and you fall asleep later, and then when you wake up, it's fucking Thursday? Yeah, turns out there's a wormhole at the bottom of every bottle of rum. 1975, he starts trying to get his life back in order, and eh, wouldn't you know it, he falls in love with a pretty girl. That sounds nice. A pretty girl who was working as a hairstylist. He got one with a job, too. Fuck yeah. How nice is that? Damn, I'm not usually jealous of people on crime shows. They get married. Don't know her name, by the way. Not gonna matter. Things were going well, and he even got a job with his father-in-law at a gas station. Hey, gotta start somewhere. Fuck yeah. Job. Nice. And then this is interesting. He makes a complete 180 when he met this girl. He stopped using drugs and alcohol for just long enough to connect with her and actually get married. That's pretty wild. But within six months, he's done another 180 back the other direction and is doing lots of drugs, drinking. He's also now physically abusive to his poor wife. And not long after that, they are divorced because neither his wife nor the state of Florida feel like putting up with his bullshit anymore. So, see ya, Stano. Good luck pumping gas. Another five years skates by, and Stano? Uh, I don't think he's been adjusting to life very well. He is arrested on March 25th, 1980 for attacking Donna Hensley. She escaped from a hotel, probably motel actually, and called the cops. She is a prostitute, and he approached her one night looking for a good time. Hey, do you know what a blumpkin is, and how much would you charge for a blumpkin? At the hotel, things didn't really go over very well between the two. Maybe she found out what a blumpkin was and didn't like the vibe, or more accurately. Stano refused to pay her up front, like a lot of women in that profession demand. I am also not going to tell you what that is. If you want to know, 
do you have the internet? Donna didn't like the idea of possibly giving away her product for free, because why buy the cow if you've already got the cream, so they started arguing. Stano does the reasonable thing at this point and stabs her 30 times, insults her, and then just leaves. Bye! Tell your friends I'm a coming for them! She didn't even have to do that, though, because, uh, turns out, all the other local ladies also knew who he was, so it didn't take long to identify him, and he was arrested later that day. I have a question for all of you out there, and also myself when I listen to this later. How the fuck did she survive 30 stab wounds? Were they, like, surface stabs? Just, like, a little pokey-poke? Like, how deep did he go? You got, there's 30 stab wounds. That's, that's a lot of blood, no matter what. Like, a stab has to produce blood, I would think. Like, where can you be stabbed 30 times and still live? How did he insult her, too? Was he just like, you dumb hooker, I ain't paying no more than $20 for a handy jack. Take that! Or, your boobs are two different cup sizes. I don't pay for defective product, you scamming whore. God damn it, stop bleeding on the carpet. I use my real name for this motel, you bitch. Stab. Why did his voice change? So, so this interaction with Donna is what led us to the cold open from the beginning of the episode. This would be the investigation into a long string of unsolved murders and missing person cases, most of which at this point have gone cold. Now, the person they're talking about in the interrogation wasn't Donna. That was a different girl that I'll fill you on in that I'll fill you in on in just a couple of minutes here. Gerald had admitted that he began killing in the 1970s when he was in his 20s, but he also says he took his first life at the age of 18 in the late 60s, so there seems to be a little bit of discrepancy there. There were a lot of girls that had gone missing in the area and at that time, but there wasn't a ton of physical evidence to consider. He was supposedly active in Jersey and Florida, two places with a lot of thick accents, loud opinions, and even louder residents. He admitted that his first murder happened in New Jersey in 69, nice, then six more women in Pennsylvania, and after moving to Florida, he may have killed up to 30 more women. Most of them were women in vulnerable circumstances, and only two were not Caucasian, most of them between the ages of 16 and 25. We are going to blitz through the list of victims really quickly. The bodies of Janine Marie Ligatino, 19, and Anne Eugenia Arsenault, 17, were discovered stabbed to death in a vacant lot in Gainesville, Florida, March 21, 1973. Barbara Ann Bauer, 16, found on September 6, 1973, also in Florida. She'd been strangled to death and abducted from a shopping mall. Ew. Kathy Lee Scharf, 17, hitchhiker from Port Orange, whose body was found on January 19th in the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge near Titusville. She had been stabbed and strangled sometime between January 73, December 73, and January 74. This is the one that would end up getting his final death sentence conviction. More on that later. November 24th, 1974. Woman's decomposed body was found lying face down on an embankment about 50 feet behind the Interstate Mall in Altamont, Florida, determined she had been killed in the same spot that her body was dumped. Stabbed twice, was possibly sexually assaulted as her underwear was pulled down and shirt pulled up. Stano confessed to her murder in 82, said he picked her up while she was hitchhiking on, on Interstate 4. They argued and ended up murdering her. She is known as the Seminole County Jane Doe. January 2nd, 1975, the body of Nancy Jean Hurd, 24, found near Bullow Creek Road, just north of Ormond Beach, strangled, posed, and covered with tree branches, last seen hitchhiking on Atlantic Avenue. Diana Lynn Valick, 18, was found on May 19th, 1975, in Wesley Chapel, Florida. She had been shot to death. 
Susan Basil, age 12, aw oh man, was last seen in Port Orange on June 10th, 1975. According to Stano's 1982 confession, picked her up as she got off the school bus, took her to the skating rink, instead strangled her, left her body in a patch of woods covered with palm fronds. Body was never found and the site has been since built over. Man, what the fuck? That one sucks. That, uh, that's the, that one stings. On July 22nd, 1975, fishermen discovered the body of 16-year-old Linda Ann Hamilton strangled, drowned, and buried in the sand on the beach near Turtle Mountain State Park in New Smyrna, Florida. She was last seen walking down Atlantic Avenue. 21-year-old Emily Branch's strangled body was found floating in Spruce Creek in December 1975. She'd been murdered a few months earlier. Susan Bickrest, 24, was an aspiring cosmetologist who had just moved to Daytona Beach from Ohio kidnapped by Stano from her place of work on December 20th, 1975. How do you kidnap a hairstylist from work? That one seems... How do you pull that off? What do you say? 35-year-old Bonnie William Hughes was found on February 11th, 1976. She had been beaten all over her head and face. Her car, 1974 brown and gold Cadillac, found 50 feet from her body. It's like literally right over there. She was deaf in both ears and was last seen at an oyster bar in Winter Haven with an unknown white male. Ramona Cheryl Neal, 18, found in Tomoka State Park, May 29, 1976, body concealed with branches. Her brother, Tony Ecker, was a freelance journalist that covered a lot of this case, and he had waited a long time for Stano to pay for his crimes. This is a good quote from him. I hope he says he's sorry, but I don't really care. It's time. I want to look at Stano, look at his face when they strap him in. I want the bad dreams to stop. As soon as he's put to death, the better we'll all rest. He just wants it to be over with, man. He's probably exhausted from living with this for 20 years. Victims 18-year-old Joan Gale Foster and 39-year-old Emily Grieve were both found on September 28, 77 and October 21, 77 in Pasco County. Both had been shot multiple times. Moving right along here, this is a lot, I know. October 28, 1977, 23-year-old Phoebe Winston reported missing from her home in Plant City. I really hope the mayor of Plant City is just like a giant ficus. That'd be fun. She was last seen driving a 1964 light blue Ford four-door sedan body. Oh, that was recovered on March 3rd, 1978. On March 27th, 1979, her skeletal remains were found in a field, and she had also been shot in the head. Kathleen Mary Muldoon, 23, was in her third semester of woodworking classes, that's cool, at Daytona Beach Community College. School acquaintance gave her a ride to a restaurant on, the se on November 11th, 1977. Her body was later found in a drainage ditch, being beaten and shot. 35-year-old Sandra Dubose, or Dubois, was discovered on a deserted road near Daytona Beach in Brevard County on August 5th, 1978. She was shot to death. 16-year-old Christine Goodson, found on April 15th, 1979. Cause of death, not publicly revealed. No idea. 17-year-old Dorothy Williams, discovered stabbed and beaten to death behind a Holiday Inn in Tampa. If I'm ever murdered and you find me behind a Holiday Inn, just make something else up. Don't make it a Holiday Inn in Tampa. Mary Carol Marr, 20, was abducted on January 27th, 1980, near the Daytona Beach Boardwalk, and was stabbed to death. This is the missing person that Crow wanted help finding when he interviewed Stano. Her body was covered with branches and pretty obviously posed. Victim was lying on her back, arms positioned at her side, head turned upward. The body was completely clothed, and there were no visual indication of sexual molestation. That's good, at least. Crow surmised that she'd been dead for at least two weeks, and because of the advanced state of decomposition... Not immediately clear what caused her death. 
Upon turning the young woman over, Crow discovered several punctured wounds to the back, suggesting that her killer had become enraged and repeatedly stabbed her. April 15, 1980, a boy in Holly Hill near Daytona Beach discovered a human skull in the woods at the end of the road. He took the skull home in a bag and showed it to his parents, who called the sheriff's office. Hey, uh, my boy just came home from school with a skull, and I don't think the theater is doing Hamlet this year, so I think y'all might want to come take a look at this. Investigators scoured the area for a few days and eventually found more remains, mostly skeletonized, and some pieces of clothing. Apparently, wild animals had pulled the corpse apart and scattered it around. Yeah, that's generally what they do. I don't know why they're surprised at that. An autopsy later identified the victim as 26-year-old prostitute Tony Van Haddocks. Cause of death, multiple stab wounds to the head. We have come right back around all the way through March 25, 1980. They get an interesting lead from Donna Hensley. Jim Gadbury took her back down to his office. She had been walking down Atlantic Avenue when a dude in a red gremlin pulled up. They agreed on a price and went to a motel. Not uncommon for a sex worker to ask for the money up front because fuck you pay me, but Mr. Gremlin refused to pay, then stabbed her in the right thigh with a big knife, yelled at her, called her a few names, and then left. She had to get 27 stitches at the ER, and she's pretty pissed about the whole thing. I mean, I probably would be too, though. Imagine you went to work, and in the course of doing your job, a customer stabs you in the leg insults you and then runs away and then also you don't get paid all right fine but i'm taking all these staplers and a few reams of printer paper too she wanted him to pay for what he had done to her so she told the police everything about him she could remember which turned out to be a lot average height slightly overweight wore glasses had a mustache and i saw his car at an apartment complex like right over there it's like right there right down the road all you got to do is just nudge the eight ball man corner pocket and then boom Field goal. That's your guy. That's, I swear, as soon as you, as soon as I see him, I'll remember who him is. I'll never forget a man that stiffed and stabbed me at work. So Gadbury Egg went to the apartment complex to go find the gremlin, but it wasn't there. It was actually just a mile away, going back the other direction. So when he left, he spotted the car, took down its description and location, then went back to the department. Guess who? We found Gerald Eugene Stano. Noticed that uh, he had a long rap sheet, but was never convicted of anything. Interesting. Printed out his mugshot, showed it to Donna. She positively ID'd him. Yes, sir, that's him. That's the man that cut up my leg and sliced up my veins and muscle fibers. Did I tell you I had to get 27 some odd stitches because of that some bitch? I'm still mad as hell about it. He gonna pay for my hospital bills, right? Look, I'm kind of having trouble getting regular work on account of he tried to carve out a spare vagina on my damn leg. Another young woman's remains were found in Daytona Beach, Florida on November 5, 1980 by the Department of Transportation. Found some skeletal remains in the median strip of I-95, literally in the fucking middle of the road. She had been murdered several weeks before and died due to stab wounds in her upper torso. There's a lot of stabbings going on here. Stano told investigators that the woman was a prostitute he met on Main Street in 78, 79, somewhere right around there. Said he choked her to death and took her to the wooded area. Years later, he remembered the slogan on her shirt, Do it in the dirt. An advertising slogan for a motorcycle manufacturer. Which fucking one? What? I've never heard that. No charges were filed in accordance with the plea agreement. The woman's remains are unidentified, and she is the Daytona Beach Jane Doe, not the Seminole County Jane Doe. There's two different Jane Doe's. He was found guilty of nine murders, got a life sentence for eight of them, and a death sentence for, I think, three? But ultimately, one, 
and we're going to go over that in just a minute. But dude, check this out. By his 29th birthday, he was in prison with Bundy for murdering 41 people. Fuck, man, what an accomplished life. I hadn't done anything by 29, and this man has not only met one of the most famous serial killers in history, but he's apparently paid homage to one of the greats, you know, stabbing the shoulders of greatness, standing on the shoulders of greatness, as it were. The only thing I'd accomplished by the age of 29 was getting a platinum trophy in Bloodborne and then a tattoo of the same fucking game. So, what am I doing over here? So before we got to this point, there are around 13 years worth of back and forth appeals and hearings and legal proceedings, lawyers filing for stays of execution and extended investigations into all this. I wanted to include all of them for context, but it, it went on for way too long. And I don't think it's really going to add much besides a 10 minute longer runtime. It was 10 minutes of really boring information and dates that really don't need it. So just know that there was a lot of legal hullabaloo going on before we get to execution day on March 23rd, 1998. His final meal, fuck yeah, I haven't had one of these in a while. Delmonico steak, which is basically just a, a big ass ribeye. He had a loaded baked potato, full you know, bacon bits and cheese and sour cream and green onions and butter. Salad with some blue cheese dressing, eh, some lima beans, gross. Gallon of mint chip ice cream, also meh. And a two liter of either Pepsi or maybe Dr. Pepper. I've seen him say both sodas. Alright, not bad. Hell yeah to most of that. Not a bad last meal. He claimed innocence the entire time, blaming his situation on investigator Paul Crow. We're definitely going to talk about that in a little bit. He said, Gerald did, I am innocent, I am frightened, I was threatened, and I was held month after month without any real legal representation. I confessed to crimes I did not commit. He was also the first execution since Old Sparky, the very originally named chair that was housed at the Florida State Penitentiary. Last time they used it, it malfunctioned while they were executing Pedro Mar Medina, Pedro Medina, a foot-tall bolt of flame shot out of the top of this man's head the moment they turned the chair on. What in the fuck? Crazy enough. Not the only time that's happened. That was the second time within two years that it's happened, which is already unacceptable. But still, one of the legal hullabaloo things that I skipped over was them deciding whether or not the chair was okay to use. They decided, yeah, still okay. In a 4-3-1 vote. Still Maybe a fire chair is still okay. I wonder if Stano was worried about becoming a bangle smash hit when they were strapping him into the chair. Is this gonna shock me? Or am I becoming an eternal flame? So, the reason that there were 13 years of appeals and hearings is... Uh, Stano may have just been a serial confessor. There seems to be an alarming lack of physical evidence linking him to any of the actual crimes. In fact, Gadbury actually rejected his first confessions as valid. 1986, Gadbury signed an affidavit that said Paul Crow, the investigator from earlier, was responsible for, quote, spoon-feeding Stano intimate details of unsolved homicides. Essentially, Paul would lead Stano into parroting back the information to him. Many other officers also testified that they saw Paul, quote, help him confess to crimes he didn't commit. 
He also, in his sworn testimony in a federal appeals court in Orlando, said he enlisted the help of a local reporter, Kathy Kelly, this is Paul Crow saying this, who used her newspaper archive powers to locate details of unsolved cold cases that Stano later confessed to, including the one that landed him the death sentence that he was carried out for, Kathy Lee Scharf. Stano also was only brought to trial on one homicide out of potentially 41, that's kind of weird. There wasn't any physical evidence, and the only thing that, had, that they had to go on was Stano's own confessions. In 1997, Arthur Nash admitted on his secret recording, I don't like that, that he'd lied in his testimony about Stano. He'd been coerced and asked by two prosecutors to make up a story in exchange for some kind of incentive. It didn't say what. 2007, the FBI determined that their unidentified pubes couldn't have possibly belonged to Stano, which is also concerning. Susan Nix was at one point a police officer in Daytona Beach, but is now an agent with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. She testified that Crow wanted to write a book about Stano and talked about sharing profits with Gary, which is what he called Stano, or Jerry. It's I think it's Jerry, but it's spelled with a G, so I don't know. Say what you want there, I guess. Stano isn't necessarily innocent. Here's the thing. He's not necessarily innocent, but the investigations weren't fully completed and a lot of the lack of evidence could have been tainted by someone's desire to write a book. That's that's definitely a conflict of interest. Beliefs inform actions. So if you believe that you can stick to a plan, particularly one that could pay off financially for you, that could very easily wind up causing some skewed data or evidence in favor of whatever makes a better selling book. During a violent stabbing that Stano claimed to be involved in after an argument with a prostitute, Gadbury personally took the car to the crime lab and said that in two weeks, they didn't find a single drop of blood. I think that was talking about the um, uh, Donna Hensley one. They stabbed her 30 some odd times. There would be blood. There's no way that it wouldn't be on him or on his clothes or tracked in his car. There'd be blood somewhere. His lawyer, Mark Olive, Greek god of justice, said that if anyone is the sort of person who would commit 40 perfect murders, it's not Stano. And again, that's his lawyer saying that, and his lawyer's not going to throw him under the bus, but, I mean, if anyone's going to know the intimate details of their client, it would be their lawyer, so that's... You can at least take that at face value and look a little deeper into it, I think. Then he goes on to describe a time when... St <laughs> this is funny, check this out. Stano gets into an argument with um, a hooker, as he often did. He fought with them all the time about not wanting to pay, so in one altercation, he got into an argument, didn't want to pay, but she wanted him to pay, so they raced each other to the police station to see who could report it first, which is like being in line first at the DMV in the morning. Yeah, sure, you're there, but no one really wins in that situation. So a lot of this feels like there should have been a way more diligent investigation, and done by more than just Paul Crow. There wasn't any evidence or fibers or blood or property or DNA or anything physical that could actually link him to the crimes he confessed to. There were some eyewitness statements about Paul Crow being a little too eager to solve this case, and if you take those at face value, it really seems like he had a little too much sway in the whole thing. However, Eyewitness testimony is also pretty unreliable in many cases. 
And the thing about beliefs informing actions also works in the opposite direction. If other people believe that Crow was pushing an agenda, then that could be confirmation bias acting against their active reasoning, which would be flawed. So there's a lot of confusion and different ways to look at things from either side here, honestly. But fuck, man. Like, somebody had to kill all those people, right? They didn't just do that to themselves. Somebody, somebody killed them. If you look at the profile, it kind of seems like circumstantially, this is reminding me a lot of fucking, what is that, uh, my cousin Vinny, uh, circumstantially, seems like he'd be a good fit for what they're saying that he did and that they got him to confess to, you know? A simple-minded, angry man that hates women, has to pay for sex, doesn't like paying for it, has had a very violent past, shady upbringing, he got bad grades, wet the bed until he was 10, he's a loner, he can't hold down a steady job, struggle with drug and alcohol, he's adopted, his parents neglected him, he lived in Florida for a long time. Like, he's got a lot of the different pieces of other serial killers that we've talked about on this show. So I'm kind of in a weird spot with this, I kind of don't know what to think. There's a lot of pieces you'll find attributed to other well-known serial killers, but I don't know. There's, I have kind of a lot of reasonable doubt for this one. There's not... The not finding blood in the car thing is going to stick with Do I think Stano did it? Uh, yes and no. Some of them, I think. I don't know about all of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Susan Nix on this one. I don't think he's innocent by any means, and it seems like he wasn't shy about expressing himself through violent outlets. I mean, he did stab Donna Hensley 30 times, so... But I think there's just too much dirty water surrounding the whole thing that anyone could reasonably conclude that he was for sure involved in all of these. And I think that alone would be grounds at least for a mistrial or an appeal or some kind of way to make things more fair for him. And not defending potential murderer, he's just as likely either way in my opinion, whether he did it or not. But if you're going to prosecute someone for murder, particularly if it's a capital case with the fucking death sentence on the table, we've got to do things the right way. Find evidence, gather confessions that aren't potentially coerced, have multiple people working the case from multiple angles, and for fuck's sake, if anybody's going to try to potentially profit off of investigation, take them the fuck out of it. Doesn't matter how good they are at their job, they seem, if they're motivated by financial gain or credibility or some other incentive beyond putting a monster behind bars and removing them from the gene pool, whatever. You're probably going to have a skewed, biased investigation. So there's my little armchair rant for you for this week. That's all the story I have for you today, everybody. If you like what you hear on this show, do me a favor and go give me some positive five-star reviews or tell a couple of friends about the show. Whatever's most convenient for you, go help the show get out in front of more listeners. I gotta say, putting this one together, been a lot of fun, and it's kind of made me miss being able to do this every week and learn some new crazy shit and talk about some interesting stuff. Hopefully, I'll be able to get back to a more regular schedule very soon. I'm trying. Also, I might be involving myself in another project that I just found out about the other day, but I'm still kind of sorting that out. You know I'll give you regular updates on here, though. So, I haven't decided what to do for the next episode, but just keep an eye out for the little blue dot on Spotify and check it every Sunday. Until then... Thank you for listening, make smart choices, and stay kind, everybody. Bye!